This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was great. Someone or something is trying to scare them to death. Now, if anything frightens you, anything at all, you just holler. Holy baloney, here we go again. I just found Cousin Francis in my bed. Was he wearing a dress? Yes, he was. Just ask him to leave, sir. Tell him you have a headache. Whatever happens... Who knows if any of us shall ever see the morning. They have to be ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready! One, two! Spread your love and arms. Clear out of space. Beat it while you're still healthy. You Students, welcome to a very special episode of Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You. I'm Eric Winnick. I'm Bradford Lorick. And like many very special episodes, today we will be covering a very serious subject that deserves our time, respect, and attention. Werewolves. Did you know that one out of 11.5 people will become a werewolf in their lifetime? And that's why we urge you to call 1-866-SCAR-YOU, our official werewolf hotline, because no one should have to suffer this fate alone. And with that public service announcement out of the way, we call this podcast Scare You, because tonight, two of us are going back to school, as it were, to learn something new, and these dudes will be experiencing a horror film they haven't seen yet, as assigned by a true horror aficionado, you, Mr. Lorick. Oh, well, I feel like I may be the one getting lessened tonight, (sighs) because joining us to discuss the 1986 film Haunted Honeymoon. All the way from the great state of Maine is the one and only Michael Pressman. Uh, Now, for those of you unfamiliar, and shame on all of you, Michael is an award-winning director, producer, who has worked across most entertainment genres and mediums. His directing credits for film include The Bad News Bears and Breaking Training, Dr. Detroit, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze, to Jillian on her 37th birthday, and Frankie and Johnny are married. And, of course, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze, is the best of the OG Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles films. Uh, In addition, 
Michael's TV directing credits are almost too numerous to name, but include Picket Fences, Blue Bloods, Chicago Hope, and all variations and permutations of law and order. Uh, for the theater, his credits include Come Back Little Sheba on Broadway, starring Esapatha Merkerson. So, hey, how the heck are you, Michael? And what are you up to these days? Well, I'm good. I'm good, Eric. Um, what am I up to? There's two things, actually, right in the yes. forefront. Uh, one is... And I don't think I've even, you're aware of this, but I just completed directing an original musical in Los Angeles at the Rogue Machine Theater in mm. Hollywood called Come Get Maggie. And it's a, um, a, a kooky, crazy, fun, heartfelt musical original written by Diane Froloff, who actually is a television writer whom I've been working with on Chicago Med. This is a sort of project of hers that she's been in, working on for over 10 years. And it's about a young woman in the 1950s who dreams of outer space and aliens. She's abducted. She falls in love. She's returned to Earth. Everyone thinks she's crazy. The alien finds her. They reconnect. She, he decides to be with her on Earth. Um, that's the short version, the short version of the show. It's very, very delightful. We had great reviews in L.A., and we are in the process of trying to set this up, hopefully, in Chicago. That's the sort of business side of what's going on. And the personal is I am working on one screenplay, and I am beginning... I'm actually 20-some pages in to a book about directing and my life. And the idea is basically um, the unknown career of a successful director. And it sort of is capturing all the dramas of, of my experiences as a hopeful way to share and, and enlighten others who also have the dream of wanting to be a director. Um, and Mr. Winnick, I understand that you have something of a humorous anecdote about how you and Michael met. Am I correct about that? Uh, well, I'm not sure how humorous it is, but I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, so in the summer of 2005, I was a playwright in residence at the National Playwrights Conference at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in Waterford, Connecticut. Never heard of him. And Never heard of him. And uh, one night I was eating dinner on the back porch at this long table. And I got into conversation with this uh, uh, handsome gentleman across the table from me. And we were talking, I believe, about uh, 1970s movies. And I was, I was quizzing him about directors. Uh, I, I would say the name of a film and he would name the director. Uh, like every single time, no matter how obscure the film, he just knew exactly who the director was. Um, and so I found out that this guy was a film director himself. And uh, he was there to direct a reading of a screenplay at the conference. And I remember running up to my room, turning on my computer and looking him up on IMDb. I had to know who he was. And it turned out that among the many films he directed, one was the Bad News Bears in Breaking Training, mm -hmm. which which I'd gone to see with a group of friends 
on my ninth birthday in 1977. And so when I came back to the table, I looked at this guy, Michael Pressman, and I started to chant the words, let them play, let them play, which is, of course, a line from a pivotal scene in the film in which the Bears are playing the Houston Toros in the old Astrodome. People are trying to kick them off the field. So as one of these players, Tanner Boyle, starts running around and these officials are chasing him, William Devane, who is the team's coach, mm-hmm. comes out of the dugout and gets the crowd to chant, let them play. And Michael looked at me and he's like, who the hell is this guy? But then I told him the story. I told him the story about my birthday party. And from that moment on, Michael and I were friends. And um, just as a coda to this story, after that summer, Michael actually sent me a DVD copy of the film signed by him. Quote, Eric, happy ninth birthday, Michael Pressman. And I still have it. I'm actually looking at it. Um, It is one of my prized possessions. I will put a picture of it on our website. And though I don't see you as much these days, Mr. Pressman, I am just thrilled that you are here with us tonight. Well, you're bringing everything back. I do have a memory (laughs) of the of the I was going to say before you said it, I was going to say the porch. I remember the porch. And then what's really bizarre is this crazy photographic memory I do have about directors Mm -hmm. uh, doing films of which I have been queried many a time. And yeah. basically nine out of 10, I had to miss one. I mean, I'm human. Maybe I, I didn't I, with you. I don't night. think so. But like the fact that you got like guys like Franklin Schaffner, I was like, yeah. I was like, if he got Franklin <laughs> Schaffner, like who <laughs> yeah. doesn't he know, you know? Um, That's hysterical. But, I, but, but you know, I forgot about the bad news bears, but now it has all yeah. come back to me. The first thing that we have to ask our guests is, what is your history with the horror genre and what's your favorite horror film? Okay. I am eight years old and I see in the summer, Fire Island, Ocean Beach, the community house theater, the horror of Dracula. And it's Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, directed by Terrence Fisher. I actually had to double check that today because I wanted to make sure I got it right. Um, (laughs) Uh, I was terrified. I was truly terrified. And I will also add, I think it must have been two to three years ago, I'm on a plane and I'm checking the movies and all of a sudden I see I can watch it and I saw the whole thing again and I kind of got scared all over again. I mean, it's it's a scary movie. And how did I cope with it? The very first little short film, silent film I made at the age of 13 was the fall of Count Dracula. What I didn't realize is I had made a comedy because it was so serious and it was really sort of a a takeoff on uh, the horror of Dracula, but I will give away the secret, which is I figured that the only way to kill Dracula was to do it a little differently than a cross. So we ended up disintegrating him with a, a, a Jewish star. And when I showed it, at the uh, <laughs> auditorium at school, it went to Walden School, which was a progressive school and no longer exists on the Upper West Side. The place went nuts with laughter. 
And I real I didn't even I didn't even know it was funny. So it was tremendously insightful, and it was a great uh, beginning for me. And it was really in relation to the horror genre. Now I'm going to jump to the one film that comes to my mind as number one is Don't Look Now, Nick Rogue, mm -hmm. and um, right behind it is The Innocence, Jack Clayton. Mm, sure. And they're both kind of psychological horror films. Um, but terrifying, just terrifying. Students! Thank you, Kay Kaiser. Uh, Mr. Winnick, can you give us one of your brief... Spoiler-free synopses, please. Well, I'm going to try. Uh, the The plot of this film is a, a little bit complicated, uh, Bradford. Uh, so I, <laughs> I, I have I'm, to I'm jump not... in and say I'm I'm dying to hear. The, the yeah, plot. I'm not sure I can do it succinctly, <laughs> but but here goes. Cue music, please. What's wrong with Larry Abbott? The radio star is having bouts of fear, perhaps a remnant of childhood trauma. Otherwise, everything seems to be swell. He's engaged to be married to his scene partner, the delightful Vicky Pearl. But the radio show, hosted by the Manhattan Mystery Theater and lead sponsor Ralston Purina, are concerned about Larry's health, so they've hired Larry's Uncle Paul, a psychiatrist, to employ a radical cure that will rid Larry of his fears in no more than 36 hours. And so off go Larry and Vicky to Larry's ancestral stomping grounds, a palatial estate that bears a striking resemblance to, well, let's just say we've seen it before. Just like the Abbott family butler, Fister, and the maid, the diminutive Rachel, there's something familiar about them as well. What's new are the cast of characters that assemble at the estate for Larry and Vicky's wedding, Larry's cousins Charles, Nora, Susan, and Francis Jr., all of whom seem to have ulterior motives of one kind or another, some of which may include death, or inheriting the fortune of the family matriarch, Aunt Kate. Will Larry and Vicky make it through the next couple days intact? Will we, the audience, figure out what's really going on? Maybe so, but we'll have to sit through all 82 minutes of this film to find out. So uh, well done. Very Thank well you. done, Eric. Um, why don't we tell everybody who is responsible for the making of this film? Yes. So this film was written by Gene Wilder and Terrence Marsh and directed by Wilder, who directed uh, all of four features between 1975 and 1986, this being his last. He also made the widely seen but not especially well-received films The Woman in Red, the world's greatest lover, and of course, the adventure of Sherlock Holmes's smarter brother, which also featured Dom DeLuise, Marty Feldman, and Madeline Kahn. This film uh, stars Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner, who had met on the set of their 1982 film Hanky Panky, directed by Sidney Poitier, uh, and they married in 1984. Wilder was, of course, a huge star at this point, having appeared in Mel Brooks's films The Producers, Blazing Saddles, and Young Frankenstein. 
Silver Streak and Stir Crazy with Richard Pryor. And of course, Mr. Winnick's first horror film, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yes, terrified me as a child. Um, Radner was best known for her work, of course, on Saturday Night Live and her one-woman Broadway show, Gilda Radner Live from New York, which was later turned into a film by Mike Nichols. Uh, She also appeared in Wilder's film, The Woman in Red. Uh, Sadly, it was during the filming of Haunted Honeymoon that Radner first felt the pain that would later be diagnosed as ovarian cancer. And though she did go into remission, the cancer returned, and she died three years later at the age of 42. Haunted Honeymoon also stars Dom DeLuise as the never-less-than-interesting Aunt Kate, Jonathan Price as Cousin Charles, Jim Carter as Montego the Magician, Brian Pringle as the butler Fister, and that's Fister with a P, uh, the imposing Paul Smith as Dr. Paul Abbott, the aptly named Eve Ferret as Sylvia, the extraordinary Anne Way as the maid Rachel, and some other folks. Uh, now, Michael, I understand that you never met Jean or Gilda, but you did work with Chris Greenbury, who is the editor of this film. Um, from being in the business, so to speak, do you have recollections of, of Jean or Gilda from that time? Yes, I do. Well, first of all, Chris Greenberry, who I just was think was a wonderful film editor and cut mm. two films for me, Dr. Detroit right. and Some Kind of Hero, was working with Gene. And I heard all sorts of stories about working with Gene and how, how incredibly open he was in the editing room and how much um, Chris was just loved working with him. Obviously, it was both ways because they did, I think, almost four or five films together. And I felt like I was in similar circles. I actually knew and know Mel Brooks uh, much, much more than um, anyone connected to this film, except uh, I have to go back and say I was a child actor when I was 12 and I acted in A Thousand Clowns in a stock production in Florida simultaneous to the Broadway production, and Dom DeLuise, a young 28-year-old actor, played uh, the Chuckles the Chipmunk character. So I not only saw Dom in his early years, and by the way, side-splittingly funny person who would improvise in the middle of a scene and... But never go off the script. It just would right. surprise the the actors and the audience. Um, was an absolutely wonderful, gentle man, and I felt like I knew Gene Wilder. I n- probably met him once. I heard about Gilda from Dan Aykroyd. Um, you know, there was I was in the circle, but there was a. a, a a feeling in the movie, and I, I probably want to just mention this one thing, and then we can get into it. But I, I think the film was a love letter to Gilda Radner. It was yeah. he was at such a moment in his life; he was so in love with her, so mm-hmm. in love with her. And here is, and he, by the way, and in love with the genre. And that's yeah. the other thing that I was aware of. Young Frankenstein was a was a, a passion of his convincing Mel Brooks to do the movie. It was clear that I, I, I wished they weren't in the throes of the Hollywood scene 
because you know the film was so badly received and and such a basically as Gilda wrote in her book you know it was a complete bomb and it played for one week but it, it, it's it's a hot mess but there's such talent in the movie and i just feel in some respects there's a lot of love in the film so i was very taken with that aspect now it's time for math club and debate society the portion of our show where we talk about numbers whether they add up and then we tell you what the critics thought haunted honeymoon opened july 25th 1986 was made for 13 million dollars and sadly only made eight million dollars worldwide uh now uh, Mr. Pressman just actually took the words directly out of my script. Uh, he's not looking at my script, but he took the words from my script because as Radner herself put it in her book, it's always something. Quote, on July 25th, 1986, Haunted Honeymoon opened nationwide. It was a bomb. One month of publicity and the movie was only in the theaters for a week. A box office disaster. We couldn't find many contemporaneous reviews of this film, but we did find this chestnut from Walter Goodman in the New York Times, who wrote, Hmm. With agreeable people like Mr. Wilder, Gilda Radner, and Dom DeLuise on call, a few laughs are guaranteed. But there just aren't enough of them amid the intentionally creaky creakings. The first time that gloved hand appears at the window, you're more likely to chuckle than shiver. But the second and third times, you'll probably just sit there. Haunted Honeymoon is rated PG, possibly because some child may not get the joke and be frightened. (laughs) God. God. Walter Goodman, where is he now? Um... Haunted Honeymoon was dominated for exactly zero Oscars, uh, but it did take home the Razzie for Worst Supporting Actress, which of course went to Dom DeLuise. And now's our opportunity to ask the professor, the weekly segment in which we get to ask questions of he who assigned the film, which in this case, and every case, is you, Mr. Lurick. Before we get started, I just want to confirm, Michael, that like Eric, you had not seen this film prior to my assignment. Absolutely, I had not seen this film before. And I'm saying it with a smile. <laughs> okay. <laughs> only, be- only because um, if I had seen it before, we might have been discussing possibly other films, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Okay, great. So, Professor, uh, please inform us uh, and our listening audience why... <laughs> on earth you chose this quote end quote film for the scare you curriculum well i feel like this is cheating a little bit but this is a very special episode of scare you um and i feel like it's cheating because this leans far further into comedy than it does into horror but my favorite movies tend to be those spookers that are are tinged with humor Now, Haunted Honeymoon came out in the summer of 1986. I was eight. 
I remember sitting outside on the patio in the summer and seeing an ad for it in the newspaper, the Scranton Times, uh, from when it came out in theaters. Haunted Honeymoon, a comedy chiller. I mean, can you imagine my excitement, Eric? But by the time I'd convinced my parents to take me to see it, probably 10 days later, it was gone. And when a few months later, it arrived on VHS to the shelves at Montage Video, I could not wait to get it first into my hot little hands and then into the waiting maw of our Magnavox VCR. And boys, let me tell you, for eight-year-old me, it was 10,000% worth the wait. A set of creaking doors opens onto a misty estate. There's a gothic mansion I was already sold. And then there's a murder and a wig and a Duesenberg and a werewolf and Stormville, New York. I had been to Stormville, New York. Holy shit, be still my young heart. Um, and then, of course, we smash to this throng of reporters rushing into the studio where Manhattan Mystery Theater is broadcast. I grew up listening to records of the shadow with my grandmother. And from that moment, uh, for me, it was then as it is today, just 83 minutes of pure joy suffused with some kind of facsimile of golden age Hollywood glamour. And I think that um, an objectively kooky, to steal Michael's descriptor, kooky cast of fantastic American and British comic actors doing their best, you know, performative, histrionic 1930s, they're a total delight. And I think that the score, like the dusty production design, is exuberant and kind of perfect. Um, and, you know, with regard to production design, it's probably also worth noting that Nebworth House, the exterior of the mansion, has also been used a million times in a million movies, uh, including The Lair of the White Worm, uh, The Monster Club with Vincent Price and John Carradine, Tim Burton's Batman, Eyes Wide Shut, uh, and I, I think also a handful of Hammer films were shot at Nebworth House. Extending from sort of the, the production design, I think the costume design and the styling is really expert. The clothes feel either really 30s chic or like they've been worn a thousand times and are a decade old. Um, and I think that the writing of it is is really silly and delicious. Um, when, when Larry and Vicky arrive at Aunt Kate's house and meet Fister, Larry is, is sort of calming Vicky down and he tells her that Fister might seem a little strange, but is perfectly normal. And Vicky asks, what'll I talk about? And Larry says, talk about a minute. That'll be enough. I, I, I use, I use that line to this day. Um, and, you know, I think that the, the practical effects in it are pretty perfectly executed. Um, Gene Wilder and John Steers used, you know, period appropriate techniques to, to realize the special effects. Wilder really wanted to evoke 30s films in the cinematography while shooting in color. So there are no primary colors. There's a real softness to the look of it. Um, and I think it's, it's filled with visual gags that I love, like Larry's bedroom, 
which is cobwebbed from here to eternity that Rachel never stops cleaning up. Um, <laughs> we get we get Chekhov's Ming vase, um, and of course, uh, you know, it, it sort of has to be said that this film is filled with references. Um, and they were references that I couldn't possibly understand when I first saw it, but they're so significant to the experience of seeing Haunted Honeymoon that it couldn't exist without them because it parodies all the tropes of horror films set in old dark houses. Um, you know, uh, between the mid seventies and the mid eighties, there were a handful of, of movies and most of them were sort of comic that revived the subgenre. And we've got Clue, Murder by Death, a remake of The Spiral Staircase, um, House of the Long Shadows, which I love, which has uh, Peter Cushing and Vincent Price and Christopher Lee and John Carradine. Um, and uh, also um, there was a film that came out shortly before Haunted Honeymoon called Bloodbath at the House of Death which is also a, a fun watch. Um, but Wilder took considerable inspiration from the old dark house, which we covered on Scare You. Um, he cribbed dialogue directly from it. Uh, Aunt Kate's first sort of speech, you know, they were all godless mm -hmm. here. They used to bring their women, brazen, lolling mm -hmm. creatures. That, that whole uh, section is lifted from Rebecca Femme in the old dark house. The film The Spiral Staircase from 1946, which is all about sort of psychological elements related to trauma that stems from the death of parents. It's got drunken servants. It's got infer an, an infirm matriarch uh, and a lot of people running from room to room in an old mansion. Um, and I think the score of The Spiral Staircase ha ha is very influential to the score of Haunted Honeymoon. And The Spiral Staircase was also, not also, The Spiral Staircase uh, was an adaptation of a novel which was first presented as a radio play prior to being made into a film, much like the meta device at work in Haunted Honeymoon. And in fact, Dom DeLuise based his performances on Kate on Ethel Barrymore's performance as Mrs. Warren in The Spiral Staircase. Larry Abbott feels like a... a an anagram for Larry Talbot, which is Lon Chaney uh, Jr.'s yes. character's oh, yeah. name in The yeah. Wolfman. Oh, of course. That, um, that and, I got, yeah. Yeah, and the, the werewolf looks like Chaney in that mm -hmm. film. Um, yeah. And, you know, we've got, like, visual references to Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, uh, the, yep. the candelabra in the hallway that are held by moving arms. Um, and, you know, at this point, I have... I have now seen this movie probably about yeah, probably more than a hundred times when the <sighs> DVD came out in 2001, I bought it immediately. I, I own a copy of the original soundtrack recording on CD, which now sells for like 150 bucks on eBay. I have a copy of the screenplay from the Gene Wilder collection at the university of Iowa. Um, when we were kids, my brother and I used to shout, Oh, what memories and slide down banisters. Um, <laughs> and as I watched it again for this conversation, I, I found myself once again laughing out loud. 
And when Jean and Gilda sing a snatch of Always in All Ways right before the movie ends, my heart nearly burst again. Um, and what makes me sad, however, is, is that while this film is... Uh, and Eric, I will call it a movie for you. While this movie is breaking exactly zero new ground, there are not a lot of firsts happening here. There are a lot of lasts. And this was the final theatrical feature film that Wilder directed. It was the final collaboration between Dom DeLuise and Gene Wilder. And this was the last film Gilda Radner appeared in. And, and Gene Wilder said, talking about Haunted Honeymoon, it's my favorite kind of film in the world. And he was referring to the, the, the kinds of films that he loved as a kid that scared him, but also made him laugh. And I chose it for tonight because I couldn't agree with him more. I'm going to say something. You made me think about something as you were talking, because I talk about sweet and 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 genuine and uh honest about your child relationship to this movie which is beautiful i thought to myself and i i'm i am not this kind of person but i because i haven't smoked a joint in 20 years but i thought to myself i'd love to get together with you take a good hit off a joint and watch this movie again You know what that means. Wait, is that the fire drill? Damn, Skippy, it's the fire drill. Whatever else you do, should you choose to listen further and you have not seen this film, what are you, dead? That's right, it's time for Study Hall, the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, or aspects that made this such an indelible film. And we will be breaking this section up into two segments, Honor Roll, i.e. what worked, and detention, i.e. what didn't work. Uh, but before we get into it, I have to ask you all, just to establish where we are on the playing field, just a basic yes or no response, did you like the film? Michael? Boy, um, I'm going to give it a yes. All right, Mr. Winnick? Uh, what do you think, Mr. Lark? <laughs> So let's get into it. Yes, let's get into it, shall we? We're going to do honor roll first. We will do it round robin style, and we will each name three scenes or aspects or attributes that worked best for us. And then we will hand out the dreaded detention slips. Mr. Pressman, as our guest, why don't you go first? What is your first nomination for the honor roll? I actually loved all the stuff at the radio station with the Foley, and that was just delightful. And it was also um, fun to see and was even like, oh, I didn't know how they did those sounds and and, and the, the affection that everybody had for it. And I just loved all that work. Mr. Winnick, do you have a first honor roll mentioned? Uh, yes, and it will not surprise you that I only have two uh, honor roll nominations for this film, Mr. Lurick. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, the actors, uh, for the most part, I, I would say do an admirable job of playing all of this uh, straight. Uh, it's wonderful to see Wilder and Radner together. Um, their love for the material and each other uh, shines through. 
They're having a grand old time. Uh, it was great seeing a young, nubile, young Jim <laughs> Carter. Did we catch that? Jim Carter, who's probably best known now as Downton Abbey's butler, Mr. Carson, playing Montego, the magician husband of Larry's cousin, Susan. Also, I did like Jonathan Price in this, uh, though it's it's so weird to see him playing sort of this down-on-his-luck American with this untraceable regional accent. So that's what I got. All right. Uh, and I'm going to jump in right on that, Mr. Winnick, and say, I guess very specifically, yes. the actor chemistry. Um, mm. You know, it, there's an unfakeable chemistry between Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner. Um, I think in a movie that that traffics in the heightened, if not exactly the fantastical. Um, and again, like I said, with all of these sort of plots that are all kind of moving around each other at the same time, um, I think the reality of their relationship is never for a second in question. Um, and and I think there's a, a kind of pervasive feeling that that radiates from the screen that everyone who is acting in this movie is having an absolute Ball. And I think that can't be overvalued. Um, you know, it, it, it right. translates directly to the audience. Yep, I would agree with that. All right. Um, so um, definitely. Should we hand it back to Mr. Pressman for his second yes. honor roll nomination? Yes. Number two, Michael, what do you got? You know, I'm listening to you guys and I think I'm now recalling the single strongest feeling I had was Gilda. The moments she had throughout the film, mm -hmm. her comedic moments, her uh, her love and trying to take care of Gene Wilder, and then mm -hmm. her her jealousy, and then her humor. Um, it was just, it was great to see her, and I think because of the circumstances, all the more poignant um, mm. to find out later that she was actually unaware of her illness and that she was working through exhaustion and mm -hmm. all that. But at the time watching it, we were in awe. And isn't it kind of fascinating to, to kind of look at her trajectory as a performer, you know, going from playing, um, you know, uh, Lisa Lubner or mm -hmm. um, Roseanne Rosanna Dana on SNL to, to playing a, a, real kind of Gilda in this movie. And I mean that in, you know, the Rita Hayworth sense, you know, she is so glamorous and so self-possessed and, and delightful in this film. Yes. You could imagine, and this is where it, it has a little bit of tragedy where she could have gone from here. Yeah. Yes. You know what? I was thinking that as well. And, and, and the thing that just, uh, I, I broke my heart was she had such a radiant smile. Yes. And she's smiling throughout most of this film. I mean, mm -hmm. even in the worst of circumstances, she has this great big smile on her face. Yes. And it's in character, but at the same time, you can imagine that she's just enjoying the material and enjoying working with Jean. So um, I will also say, um, before we move on to, to your second honor roll nomination, Eric, that in addition to being unknowingly ill during the making of this film, 
Gilda Radner also suffered a miscarriage while making this film. Oh, yes, oh, that's oh, right. I, did, I didn't know that. That's Which, right. I mean, yeah. it, it says so much more about the quality of that yeah. performance, you know? Which really, right. I just want to jump in and still, still makes me feel at, at the center of this was a love letter, a, a love story between the yeah. two of them. Absolutely. Right. To, not only to one another, but I think to the genre. And to the, the idea of, of movie making, I think. Right. Eric, do you, uh, do you have a second honor roll nomination? Uh, yeah, second and final, uh, Mr. Lurick. Yes, I do. Um, you know, I, just to follow up on um, your dissertation earlier, um, th- there are all kinds of references in this film. Um, and as as you put it, I, I don't think it's really influenced by any one film, but there's definitely a smattering yeah. of old dark house in there. And I'm so glad that you sequenced uh, the these episodes with uh, allowing me to see the old dark house for the first time. Um a few months ago, Aunt Kate takes a line, as you put it, from Anna Massey's about the perils of fleshly love. <laughs> um, there is an imposing butler, albeit one who speaks, uh, unlike Boris Karloff's Morgan. In Morgan is an and, uncivilized brute. And there's a final fight on a balcony, although nobody falls over it. Um and for the most part, these throwbacks were really fun. And, and, and it definitely felt like this was a labor of love for Wilder, um, giving it was something of a tribute to the films he loved. Um, I, I even clocked, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I think I clocked a Rocky Horror reference when Vicky and Aunt Kate are trying to determine the dance steps of bawling the jack. Um, they say something like, first you put your two knees close up tight <laughs> then you swing them to the left and then swing them to the right. Is that not the beginning of the time warp? Well, Mr. Winnick, to be fair, I think maybe the time warp was influenced by Ball in the Jack because mm. it's a real song. Oh, sure, sure, sure. But it, but it is interesting how... I, I don't know. I mean, the song itself obviously existed but, oh, before the, the film, but, the, but the, song, yeah. the choice, the choice of the song, but the choice of the the words they used to describe the dance steps felt very much like it's just a jump to the left and then a step to the right. You know, bring your knees in tight and do the pelvic thrust. But yes, so there, 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 you have it. Um, so that having been said, Mr. Lurk, do you have a second honor roll nomination? Um, this is a small thing, um, but there's a transition early in the film that takes us from Montego and Susan's room to the Great Hall, and I think it's it's pure movie magic. It's a total how they do that moment. Uh, it, it could be a Pepper's ghost effect. It could be a subtle cut and dissolve i have no clue and you know i I pride myself on usually having a clue um but it's this tiny moment and for somebody who's seen it as much as i have it stands out um and and it's it's fabulous to see that sort of magical transformation of the space again tiny detail but i love it um michael uh, do you have a third honor roll nomination for us? I do. I do. It's the dance with with Dom de Louise and Gilda. 
I, fabulous. Would you like to Would you like to say more about that? Uh, it, it, I'm speechless. Um, it, 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 it is, it is on its own, uh, one of the great comedic sequences. Again, you know, it, 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 it could even equal putting on the Ritz in a different context because, you know, as, as, it, oh. as historically, um, in doing some of my research today, I realized and had remembered that there was a big battle between Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks because Mel Brooks didn't want to do that number. And uh-huh. Wilder fought for it. Obviously, not only fought, but it was the high point of the film because it's a turning yep. point in the story. This right. was not, mm-hmm. this suffered in the sense that it was no turning point in the story, but as a sequence of its own, it was hysterical and wonderful and was just again to see dom and gilda do that it was just it was terrific um so i don't have a, a third honor roll so does that does that bring it back to you mr lork it does uh and i i i could not not acknowledge dom deloise's aunt kate i think his entrance is magic it, it it's a flawless uh, introduction of a character, really. You know, I mean, we have seen her earlier in the film, but, uh, you know, she really sort of comes into her own in that moment. Um, you know, the, this 83-year-old matriarch from this bizarre family who uh, enters to um, lightning and a clap of thunder and then delivers again nearly verbatim Rebecca's monologue from Old Dark House and I would say seemingly impossibly improves it um, and and creates my favorite moment in the entire film. Detention, after school, both of you. You'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? Excuse me? You can take that language Straight to detention. Anyone else? Motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just perfect. Uh, Okay. So uh, now as playwright Ernie Joslovitz used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips. Again, Michael Pressman, why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of this film? that you think deserves detention. It's the lovemaking scene that Gene Wilder has with the dead body. Oh my God. It is a scene that begins okay, but as it continues and he begins to be <laughs> continually blind to the fact that the body is dead, does not, play well in the comic genre because basically you're going, what is his problem? What is going on? Why, why are we playing this to that hilt? And this is where the director was not there to go, Gene, what are you doing? Let's, let's, let's go back. Let's figure out this scene. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it, it just went on too long and it was just crazy. To say nothing of the fact that uh, the dead body in the bed next to Gene Wilder is his cousins as well. 
and that there's something kind of, I, I guess, accepted in the Abbott family about this because when uh, Larry runs out into the corridor and runs into Fister, uh, he says, Cousin Francis is in my bed. And uh, Fister says, is he wearing a dress? Tell him to tell him you're not in the mood or something like that, you know. Um, and exactly. it's just like it, it adds another layer of sick onto the sick that we've just experienced. Got it. Got it. Okay. Thanks, uh, Michael. Uh, Mr. Lorick, let's hear your first detention slip. Well, when you say first, that implies that there are a second and third. Um, I, mm. I would say that the sort of low oxygen reverie that Larry has in the coffin um, slows the pace a little bit. Um, mm. And I think in general throughout the film, the pacing is is pretty solid, uh, but it also provides some critical exposition about Larry's psychosexual disorder. So um, yeah, that's it for me. I love this movie. Have I mentioned that? <laughs> Once or twice. All right. Uh, Eric, I, I'm, I'm guessing that this is going to be tough for you to pare down to just three detention slips, but uh, l- let's give it the old college try. <laughs> um, so look, unfortunately, as a writer and a director, Gene Wilder is no Mel Brooks. And I think this film suffers greatly in comparison to another film that Wilder starred in, which is, of course, Young Frankenstein. And now it's true that Wilder was setting out to make something a, a little less irreverent, perhaps more of a loving homage, but there's enough physical shtick in here to make you think that he was trying to emulate Brooks in some way. Um, the scene in which Fister is lying under Larry with only Fister's legs sticking out is just pure <laughs> physical comedy. And, you know, something you more than likely would see in a Mel Brooks film. Um, and also, I I just don't think that Wilder was the greatest actor's director. I absolutely disagree about Dom DeLuise. I think Wilder clearly loves the guy. He cast him several times, but somehow this performance just did not work for me. And I, I don't know what kinds of conversations they had before this thing, but in another world... You'd have an experienced drag actor. I mean, can we just say divine in this role? And it would sing, literally. Mm, Sorry. Right. Let's throw it over to yes. Mr. Pressman. Oh, yes, Mr. Pressman, detention number um, two. Detention number two was the big fight scene between Gene Wilder and Jonathan Price. Mm. Uh, I didn't know what movie I was in at that moment. This was quite a fight. This was a fight. I mean, it was like punching in the face and punching down. And yeah, I, 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 I thought it was an opportunity for, you know, um, if if another great comedy I'll bring up. But I mean, you know, where was Danny Kaye from the court jester? You know, I mean, yeah, this thing, this thing had no flips to it. It was just a knockdown, drag out fight, and uh, the only thing that was was a payoff was was how uh, <laughs> Jonathan Price got killed. Yes, I, I fully appreciate his his dispatchment. All um, right. All right, shall we uh, toss it back to Mr. Winnick for a second detention slip? On the subject of singing, um, 
I, I, I'm once again, gentlemen, going to actually uh, disagree with a, a point that um, that you made earlier. Um, I think this film has moments in which it truly seems like it's going to sort of bust out into something that's kind of this all out anarchic fun, which is to say, you know, kind of like a Mel Brooks film, but it never gets there. And one example, I'm sorry, Mr. Pressman, for me is the ball in the jack scene. I think this could be a really fun, light scene. Um, But for some reason, Wilder, the director, keeps cutting in these menacing shots of Jim Carter um, with Montego's face growing sort of darker and scarier. (laughs) And while the effect is spooky, it totally sucks the air out of the dance number. Um, It's like all you want to do is just watch Gilda and Dom DeLuise cut in a rug. But he undercuts it continually I actually saw on YouTube somebody made a cut of the dance number removing Without. all of the cuts to Jim Carter. Um, and it's much better. So that's my number two. All right. Mr. Uh, Mr. Lorick, what do you have? Do you have oh, do you have a second detention slip? I do not have a second detention slip. Oh, uh, okay. I may all give right. you so my second detention slip tonight. I had a feeling it was coming. Um d- 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 dare I ask Mr. Pressman a, a- I, I know. Third? I, I, nope, I don't have a third. All right. Well, all right. So I'll I'll take it. I'll take it home. You, um, Eric, you can just take up all of our remaining detention slips because I'm I listen. Sure you- I have only one more, and then we will um, we will go to our uh, our snack time. You know, I would say that this film has the potential to become a cult classic. But then it's just not smart or even dumb enough to do so. As Mr. Pressman said, the plot is all over the place. There's a a werewolf lurking around. There's a dead body that Larry mistakes for Vicky uh, for a shockingly long time, as you pointed out. There's a, a murder plot involving Cousin Charles. There's the plot to scare Larry to death. There's a magician with some kind of demonic power and none of it, for me, ever really coalesces into a convincing story. Um, but then I have to wonder if Wilder even cared to tell a decent story or if he was just determined to make a pastiche of horror and thriller tropes and he figured he'd just throw them all at the screen and see what stuck. I think that there's another little thing I want to hit on here having to do with um, stepping back from the film and looking at the time that it was made. Um, Gene Gene Wilder started as a very serious theater actor and he was struggling in New York and was in um, Mother Courage and then he also was in the television version of Death of a Salesman playing the Bernard, the neighbor. He was wonderful. Fame and fortune, but whether good or bad, came his way, and he was catapulted to this place where on the main stage he was playing where it would have been great for them to have done this, done this at a small theater, taken it out of town, seen what it's like, figured out what works, what doesn't work, and he was playing center stage, which... If you really could be immune to the mistakes, then 
you know, it's not so terrible, but the stakes were so high and it feels like such a personal movie. Uh, it was the good and the bad. And I read also today a quote of Gene Wilder's where it was one of his last interviews um, with Alec Baldwin. I think it was TCM. I'm not sure where he said uh, he didn't want to do act anymore. And he said, I loved the show. I hated the business. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. And uh, I could understand that because, you know, this this hurt them probably terribly. And it shouldn't have. Uh, and, and to pick up on something else that you said, Michael, uh, th there were apparently elements of sort of uh, well-fictionalized autobiography. Uh, and in fact, you know, he'd started writing Haunted Honeymoon maybe in 1980, I want to say. Wow. Uh, and he, he'd written maybe 70 pages of the screenplay and let someone read it. I don't remember who it was. Uh, you know, the, the, the reaction was, take yourself out of this. Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to share something that just has occurred to me that was quite wild um, and is the same uh, example but the flip side of the coin. And that was when I was directing Dan Aykroyd and Dr. Detroit, he was busily writing his dream first draft of Ghostbusters. Uh -huh. And he gave it to me to read. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it was somewhat incomprehensible. I, I don't remember the credits on, on Ghostbusters. I think it was Aykroyd and, and uh, Ramis wrote the screenplay. Ramis, Harold. Well, okay. So yeah. if Harold Ramis got in there, I knew Harold Ramis, and he was the ultimate um, constructionist when it came to comedy. I, he was almost like a dentist who was writing uh -huh. comedy. I mean, he, you know, yeah, yeah, brilliant. I just think he just he's just so in love with what's going on here that he didn't really stick the landing. I would agree with you on that one. You know, I mean, Harold Ramis was one of was one of Harold Ramis's toughest critics. Mm. Um, when he, he he whether he said it publicly or whether I heard it from him, but um, National Lampoon Vacation, he was they they reshot the last twenty minutes of the movie. It didn't end mm -hmm. with with the ride, and they realized it wasn't working. And right. I don't know what kind of tests were done for this movie. I would guess that it, it, it got so far that they didn't know what to do, even if it didn't test well. <laughs> and because it was, right. it was it was too far gone. Well, yeah. I, I can't speak to whether or not it was tested, but uh, I, I can tell you both that it was not screened for critics prior to opening theatrically. <laughs> Uh, before we bring it on home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess, get some air into our lungs, run around a bit, maybe have a snack or two. Uh, Michael, growing up, did you have a favorite school time snack? Yes. Um, we don't have it here, but it was always a slice of pizza. What? As a snack, not the yeah, actual I, meal. I mean, yeah, it, it was snack time. If I could get a slice. Wow. I mean, wow. it, wasn't, it wasn't school recess, but it was, you know, uh, the favorite of any kind of opportunity to get it. 
um, whether it was uh, sneaking out for a slice at lunch or mm. uh, having two slices after school and gauging uh, with a good friend of mine, uh, checking out Sal's pizza and then Phil's pizza and trying to decide which was better that day. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I couldn't I couldn't think of a snack snack. Well, let's take a break and then we will come back for the superlatives. As everyone's concerned, you're the most popular girl in your school. And the fact that you hang with Dee and I, well, speaks very highly of you. Well, he's very popular, Ed. Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. So, is this your first time out here? Yeah. I don't think I'm very popular out here, either. Hey, I met you. You are not cool. There are people I work with, and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you, Nada Surf. Uh, It is time now to hand out our superlatives. Those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dressed, and most likely to succeed. Only with us, it's things like character that most deserved to die. So... To start off, let's do that first award, uh, the one we like to call the Gaspar Noe Award for Most Disturbing Scene, named for Gaspar Noe, director of such films as Irreversible, Love 3D, Enter the Void, Climax, Vortex, and of course, Lux Eterna. Lux Eterna. Lux Eterna. Um, Bradford Lork, did you have a most disturbing scene in Haunted Honeymoon? Oh, brother, did I? And it is clearly the love scene between Larry and Cousin Francis's corpse. Uh, anything more you want to say about that, Mr. Lork? Or, uh... Nothing more needs to be said about that that hasn't already <laughs> been said. <laughs> That's true. Uh, oh, so, uh, Mr. Pressman, uh, did you have a, a disturbing scene? It's a, it's a repeat for me, but that one just stood out. Takes the taco. Yeah. Putting on the Ritz by Taco, uh, by the oh, way. Oh, God, my favorite um, song. Yeah, absolutely. Um, gentlemen, we have a trifecta. Uh, it is, in fact, uh, yes, it is the lovemaking <laughs> scene uh, with uh, Francis Jr. So that brings us to, of course, the uh, Ellen Ripley Award for character that most deserved to live. In this case, uh, it's named for um, Ellen Ripley, the uh, lone survivor of the doomed Nostromo in Ridley Scott's Alien, played by Miss Sigourney Weaver. Uh, So this is the character that most deserved to live. Mr. Pressman, would you like to start us off? Yeah, this is going to be very bittersweet. Gilda should have lived. You know what? I I actually am going to follow that up because I also had Gilda Radner because, yeah, it's not a character in the film, but... Really, it hangs over this film when you see it. And so I have to give my Ellen Ripley Award to Gilda Radner, the character Mm -hmm. who most deserved to live. Mr. Lorick? Oh, guys, this really is a very special episode of Scare You. It is. (laughs) However, I am going to... uh, I'm going to depart from uh, from the two of you. Uh, I'm going to say that cousin francis probably deserved to live because only three characters actually die and only sort of in this and two of them are 
the baddies. So uh, his his bedroom antics notwithstanding, I'm going to give my Ellen Ripley award to Cousin Francis. Well, well said, sir. Well said. Um, and, and that, of course, brings us to our next award, the Michael Myers Award for character that most deserved to die. And uh, perhaps this is a, a little bit easier to give out. Um, uh, this is named uh, for uh, Mr. Lorik. Who is this named for Michael Myers? Well, it's named for um, Michael Myers, uh, the, the, the hero of John Carpenter's Halloween franchise. Yes, the, or the anti-hero. Mm. Or is he the hero? Depends on how you look at it. Yeah, from a certain point of view. Um, okay, I'm going to say the character that most served to die was, in fact, Aunt Kate. I really <laughs> was wow. so appalled by the performance um, and also the writing of the character. So, um, yeah, I'm going to be that guy and I'm going to give it to Aunt Kate. Uh, Mr. Lorick. Well, you know, Mr. Winnick. <sighs> I would think that you might be a little bit more progressive, just as mm-hmm. I think, uh, just as I think that Dom DeLuise's casting in a female role in 1986 was kind of progressive. But as far as I'm concerned, there is only one character who deserved to die, and it's cousin Charlie Abbott, played by Jonathan Price. Yeah, but was it progressive, Mr. Lorg? Was it progressive? I mean, you know, John Waters was casting you know, an actual trans individual in his films. I, I don't know why Dom DeLuise is in this role. Um, there, there's a certain element of truth to what both of you are saying. Yeah, I um, guess. Because, so, I, you know, it makes me laugh because you you really wonder what in God's net what he's doing. And then at the same time, he disagreeing with you, Eric. He's ter- kind of terrific. So it's a little coo. Again, it, it, it's the yeah. kooky that comes to it's, my mind. It's it really the kooky, does. and I guess I'm just going with the golden raspberry folks on on this one. Um, but the uh, word kooky has never been used so much in an episode of Scare You as it has been tonight. Really? So my uh, I'm choosing Jonathan Price, and I'll tell you why. He's a terrific actor. I had a feeling that he didn't know what the hell he was doing in this movie. Right. I, 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 I agree. I, I, think, I think he embraced it, and I think he tried, but he wasn't really getting very much help from the director. It was, the, the, it, was it was, um, it, it didn't fit. Yeah, I agree. All right. Um, that brings us to uh, maybe our favorite award, the Ken Russell Award for Most Baroque Screen Moment. I am uh, so named... curious to hear how this one is going to go down tonight. Yeah, well, you know, uh, this named, of course, for a director uh, well known for Baroque moments uh, in films such as Tommy and uh, uh, Women in Love and Altered States, the Lair, Lair of the, of White, the Worm. White Worm. What's that other one he, he did? Salome's right Last Dance, which I love. No, that's not it. That's oh, not which it. Which one that's could you be it. talking about? Are you talking about was it, whore? Whore. Oh my God, was it whore? It was whore. Uh, it might have been whore. Most Baroque screen moment. Let's pass it to Mr. Pressman to start us off. What Boy, do you got? This is, I don't, I don't have, I'm trying to think. I mean, it's, it's the moment for me after Gene says goodnight to Gilda in the hallway <laughs> and what's her name comes out and starts to madly kiss him and wanting to have 
fuck him. And, uh, uh, and she, and she shows up and it's like, Oh, and then he starts to lie and go with it. No, it was, uh, it was, uh, the other woman. I, what's her character's name? The, Rachel, Rachel, the maid. It's, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 outrageous. See, now, Michael, I thought you were going to say when, you know, after everything goes down with Eve Ferret and Gilda is walking away down the hall and Hot Lips is playing and she's, you know, strutting and rolling her shoulders. That's pretty Baroque, too. Well, what do you have, Mr. Lurk? Oh, the Get Happy performance by Larry and Fister's Legs. Oh, oh, okay, okay. I mean, as he's as uh, as Larry is beating Fister with a log, uh, you know, performing (laughs) for the police who've shown up. I I think that's a pretty over the top sequence yeah. i mean perhaps rivaled only by the isn't it romantic sequence of fister playing the accordion while uh, larry dances <laughs> with dead cousin francis and tries to pass his corpse off as being his fiance vicky pearl to those two bumbling police Yes, yes. Um, Very good. Uh, Well, uh, gentlemen, I am going to give it to the balcony fight and its its conclusion. Uh, Aunt Kate shooting Charles, who, of course, goes flying back through a window uh, with Chekhov's Ming vase, of which (laughs) there are now only Only two two left (laughs) in existence. I particularly love uh, Dom DeLuise's delivery of that, the interaction with Brian Pringle. It's great. Yeah, 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 it's good. Um, All right. Our final award of the night would be the Brad Dourif Award for character that could or should have been played by the great Brad Dourif, who, of course, uh, best known perhaps for his uh, role as James Veneman, the Gemini Gemini killer. killer. In uh, William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist 3. Um, and uh, uh, the voice of Chucky in the Child's Play franchise. Billy Bibbit in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, John Huston's Wise Blood. Deadwood. Um, Dune? And inter- well, I was just going to say, Mr. Lorick, he, of course, appeared in Lynch's Dune with Paul Smith, who plays Uncle Paul Abbott in this film. Paul Smith played uh, the Beast Raban in uh, Lynch's Dune, the character played in uh, Dune now by Dave Bautista. And of course, Paul Smith, not to be confused with the fashion designer, Paul Smith, Paul L. Smith, uh, you know, he was, he played Bluto in Popeye. Yes, he was Bluto. That's right. Yes. In Altman's Popeye. That's right. Yeah. So he went from Altman to do a film called, Pieces. Have either of you ever seen Pieces? Oh, I've heard of it. Uh, Oh, man. It's J. Peter Simon who made Pieces. uh, Which is is Pieces? Is it it like 10 years ago or is it? No. Oh, no, no, no. Um, It was, I want to say, 1982 because he did uh, Popeye for Altman in 80. Uh, and Pieces, which is a really violent kind of shitbag horror movie uh, <laughs> in in which he plays a character called Willard. Um, um, but I, I do love Paul L. Smith. Okay. All right. So the, the Brad Dourif Award uh, for character that could have should have been played by Brad Dourif. Bradford Lurk, who do you have? 
Oh, uh, Francis Abbott. Uh, the uncle. Larry's uncle. Oh, oh Uncle Francis. Okay. Yeah. Okay. He's, he's like shifty in the best possible way. I can see Dorif in that role in a heartbeat. Uh, okay, I'm going to go against type on this one because I'm going to say if Brad Dourif was playing the Jonathan Price role, I thought that would have been hysterical because he tends right. up to be the villain and he would have had such – it would have been a a, a, um, a, a a character stemming from casting because something was wrong in the casting. Do you know what scene I would love to see Dourif play Charlie? The scene on the phone where he's uh, he's faking yes. the call to the cops. Ye- yes. Oh yes. The moment where oh, yes. where he he bends down and sees the cut <laughs> phone cord. I think Dorif would have made a meal out of that moment. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, gentlemen, I, I I'm going to concur with uh, Mr. Pressman on this one. I I will read directly from my notes. I'm giving it to Charles, the sneaky, snaky cousin played by yep. Jonathan Price. I love Jonathan Price, but he's so much better when he can play to his strengths. Yep. And I think Duriff would have done a great job as this sort of oily, double dealing, you know, weirdo from yeah. somewhere in fake Brooklyn. Yes, exactly. Um, so, yes, I, I, I agree with Mr. Pressman. I would I would have indeed given it to. Uh, cousin Charles. All right. right. Uh, So with that, we've arrived at our final segment of the night, the final exam. And this is the part where we give our final letter grade for the semester based on everything we've heard and seen about this film. Michael Pressman, would you like to go first? Ah, boy. Um, I'm finding myself torn in this one. I'm not going to give it an F. I'm not going to flunk this film. Hmm. Um, I can't give it an A. You know, I'm going to be really kind and go, it's a B minus because it All tried right. so hard. I did not expect that, Mr. Pressman. Uh, Winnick, what do you have? <laughs> Well, it, it's funny because I was going to say uh, exactly what Mr. Pressman said, which is that it tried. It tried so hard. Therefore, because it tried so hard, I'm giving it a C minus. Whoa, Eric, is that the lowest grade you've given this semester? Uh, no, Mr. Lurk, and I'm shocked that you don't remember that I gave your favorite film of all time a D. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. You know what? I want to throw something in here since we're talking about the film again that I that I missed that, that Brad mentioned in passing and why yes. this film does fall into the, to the Bs. I did think it was a great score by John Morris. So I, in that respect, I feel like there was people were working at, at, the, at the top of their game, except for a few who were lost. And not being properly directed. Uh, all right, Mr. Lurk, what do you have? What's your final letter grade? Oh, God, you know, I'm, I, it's such a sentimental thing. I have to imagine, I know. you know, that, that my relationship to Haunted Honeymoon is probably not terribly dissimilar from your relationship to the Bad News Bears, Eric. Uh, so I, I think if, if you are grading bad news bears, you might also give it an A. 
like I am giving to Haunted Honeymoon. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this very special episode. And if you do, tell your friends, share our episodes on that series of pneumatic tubes called the internet, have a listening party, bring some Sal's pizza, hey, maybe even subscribe. Be sure to check out additional information on our Instagram account, in our Facebook group, or on our website, scareyoupod.com. Thanks again to our special guest, Mr. Michael Pressman. Michael, if people want to find you and your work online, where can they do so? Michael-Pressman.com. There's a lot on the website, but I'm writing a book about directing. I, it could be one year away. I'm, I'm, it's not an easy book to write, but hopefully um, I get this published. I hope you get that published. I want to read that book. I'm going to be the first in line, and I hope he autographs it, Eric, for your ninth birthday. You got it. I promise. To Eric on his ninth birthday. That is the prequel yeah. to, oh to Jillian yes. on her 37th birthday. On her 37th birthday. Her exactly. Birthday. Exactly. Meanwhile, you can find me in any dark bar or at bradfordlorick.com. And you can find me on Letterboxd and Instagram under the moniker E.A. Winnick. Our announcements have been by Kay Kaiser, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Wyatt Olaf, and Sophia Lillis. And our theme music is by Edward Elgar and Sir Cubworth. Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works. We'll see you next time in the cobweb-draped bedroom we share with our cousin that we like to call... <laughs> Scare You. Oh, 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 oh.